Welcome to Smashing the Plateau. We help you get unstuck so you can do what you love and get paid what you're worth consistently. I'm your host, David Schreiner Khan. There are certain principles that are quite counterintuitive. It's something that you may have to unlearn and relearn. That's really difficult. Today on episode 519 of Smashing the Plateau, I'm here with Maiko Sakai, founder of Airtight Concepts. I'm going to ask Maiko how you can use counterintuitive strategies to boost profits and much more. Find out more about Maiko along with all of our previous episodes at smashingtheplateau.com. Now, before we get into our discussion, I want to tell you a little bit about our friends at SiteHub. If you want a system to build your acquisition of new clients without any homework on your part, contact SiteHub at yoursitehub.com. Now let's welcome Maiko Sakai. Maiko is the founder of Airtight Concepts, which is a New York City-based business growth strategy firm. She is also known as the secret weapon to her clients who are visionary entrepreneurs and CEOs with a desire to build a high-functioning, profit-generating machine of their dreams. As a self-proclaimed queen of counterintuitive strategies, Maiko provides effective but not-so-conventional strategies to boost sustainable profitability for her clients by utilizing both quantitative and qualitative assessments. Originally from Japan, Maiko loves ethnic foods of all kinds, and she is a sucker for ultra-contemporary design and exotic houseplants. Maiko earned her MBA from the Johnson School of Management at Cornell University. Maiko, welcome to the show. Great to have you on. Thank you so much for having me, David. I'm really excited to be here. Maiko, I love this concept of the the not-so-conventional strategies. I know often people in business tend to look for what they see other people doing, and they like want to follow the crowd. Right. And often the nuggets are in things that are not so conventional. So what have you found that really can help boost profits that people might not think about? That is a fantastic question. And I actually can go on and on about this, but let me just give you a couple of examples. So the first thing is uh, when it comes to delegation, when you wanted to delegate some of your work to someone else, a lot of times what you hear is to delegate the stuff that you don't like to do or you are not so good at doing, you know, so it could be a task or it could be a project where, you know, you're not really versed with it. You don't even like to think about it. So just hand it over to someone else. And that is some, something that I'm really against. So sounds intuitive, right? Um, handing over some stuff. Yeah, I've certainly heard this from many people. Delegate what you're not good at. Right. But the thing of it, this is how I describe it. In your business, you should be a generalist, meaning that you should be dangerous enough for all aspects of your business. You don't have to be an expert in each area like marketing, promotion, finance, operations. Yes, we all have our strengths and weaknesses, right? That's okay. But you should be dangerous enough so that you can have an intelligent conversation about anything. 
to do with your business. So my recommendation usually is to hand over the stuff that you are really good at and you also know how to train so that you get to train someone with confidence. So if you don't want to give it up, that's a whole other conversation. But when it comes to delegation, that would be my recommendation. And obviously, it's not really intuitive. So that would be one of my counterintuitive advice. Yeah, it's it's certainly I was going to say it's certainly not intuitive. And as a matter of fact, one of the struggles that I see a lot of entrepreneurs have is when they're trying to scale. The reason that they can't scale is because the key core value or the key deliverable is in their hands. They they have not delegated that part and they haven't trained right. other people. So the business is all about them. It's not about it's not about a methodology or a process or an actual company. It's really about an individual. Right. And you know, sometimes there's a bit of a fear associated with that decision-making process. And I can totally relate. You know, I, I can totally understand that you don't want it to hand over something that is almost, you know, your professional identity. You know, you're the face of the company and you fear that if you hand this part of the business over, it's no longer mine, which is not really true. And we can get into this a little bit, but um, a lot of times people tend to operate organically with what they know. But unfortunately, there are certain principles that are quite counterintuitive. And it's something that you may have to unlearn and relearn, which, David, I'm sure you know that it's really difficult thing to do for any of us, all of us. That's a great example, Michael. So what are some of the other strategies that people might not be aware of? Okay, so a lot of times we tend to say, and I used to say this, so I'm wondering if any of your listeners can relate. The sentence goes like this. When I get to XYZ, I will do ABC. So for example, it could be something like, when I get to make X amount of dollars, I'm going to finally hire some help in my business. And it sounds logical, rational, risk averse, and uh, you know, it, it sounds like the right thing to do. But a lot of times you may, in, in business, you may have to invest ahead of time so that when something hits, like a surge of new orders or, um, you know, the demand for your services increases all of a sudden, you are equipped to undertake all of that without really suffering. But we tend to think the other way around. Right. Because the time when you should hire somebody is when you don't have the pressure to get somebody on board by a certain date in order to deliver on a promise to a customer, because you're probably going to end up compromising on the quality of the person you hire. That's exactly it. Yeah. So I've talked to other people who say that it's... um, you should have a ready pool of people that you know you want. Right. That at least one of whom will be available when you need her or need him. Yeah, that's a good advice. And I also suggest and recommend others do is to come up with a hypothetical 
organizational chart. So they, let's just say that maybe you're a solopreneur and that's okay for now. But even you're a solopreneur, come up, you know, just uh, uh, write down your dream organizational chart. Would you be on top of it? and have a lot of junior levels at the bottom, or you're going to have you on you know, top of the structure, the organizational chart, and there might be somebody that you may call your right hand to the left. I mean, there are many different ways of doing this, right? And a lot of times, business owners or uh, uh, solopreneurs, you know, uh, freelancers, they think it's too early to do something like this. Oh, I'm not going to come up with a flow chart of my organization, like air coding. <laughs> it's too early for me. I'm just the one person, you know, trying to make it work. But the thing is, when you write down something visually, you start to feel like you own that idea. And even if you're not ready to fill all those positions, that's okay. At least you get to think about it a little bit ahead. So that's what I normally suggest anyone to do. Yeah, absolutely. And what kinds of results have you seen when you've suggested some of these tactics? Well, first and foremost, they realize there's a gap between what they thought that they were building and what's required. So in, you know, um, let's just say that uh, one person is planning of really expanding his or her business the next two to three years. And he or she thought that the hiring a bunch of, uh, let's just say, junior level professionals whom she or he could train was the way to go. But then once she or he they just wrote down this whole organizational chart on a piece of paper, started to realize there's a lot of the missing roles or missing positions that sort of surfaced right in front of him or her and realized that that's not the way to go about it. So that's the first realization that, you know, to identify there may be a gap between what you thought that you were planning of doing and what's needed. Then you get to sort of uh, fine-tune or tweak your planning of how to build your team eventually, you know, say 12 months from now, 18 months from now, you get to plan that out gradually so that, let's say, when you are not too busy during the summertime, you can pull that out, that organizational chart out and look at it and start interviewing people, not really counting on, you know, the best outcome just because, you know, you still have time to figure it out, but you get to start from there without getting all stressed out just because you're battling with five different deadlines or something like that. Yeah, absolutely. Maiko, how does, how do things like pricing strategy play into your concept of doing something that's counterintuitive? Right. Well, we all, well, I shouldn't say we all, maybe, but the, most of us start from charging by the hour for 
our service businesses. I, I help a lot of service business owners. So I don't really work with e-commerce or, you know, Amazon FBA or brick and mortar. I work with um, a lot of times creative service business owners and they, what they know from their agency life, you know, so how much is the billable hours? You know, this is like a normal conversations that pop up here and there. So they all know how to charge by the hour. But in reality, charging by the hour is actually doing disservice to their customers and to themselves. So if there's a term called productize your services, like you come up with a package, most likely with a flat rate. If you go that route, even though it may not be intuitive, you get to scale your business a lot faster. Why? Well, let's think about this hourly rate pricing first. Let me ask you a question. So if you wanted to grow your business exponentially, and let's just say that, uh, you know, for the acumen's sake, right, just to, you know, for the sake of simplicity, you're currently charging, say, $75 an hour for any type of uh, graphic design work, let's just say. Mm -hmm. How do you go about exponentially growing your business the next 12 months or 14 months? Well, one way to do it is you can hire staff that you train and you direct and you pay them less than $75 an hour and you charge the customer $75 an hour. Okay, that's one way to do it. There's another way to do it. If you don't want to hire someone to split your revenue, right? that would be to rack up your hours, right? So you would have taken more customers and you will work harder and longer hours so that you can bill more. So now you can see that, that there's a, a massive downside to this business model. Yeah, there's only 24 hours in a day. Exactly. And you know what? What you suggested is one way to go about it, right? Um, you get to hire somebody that you vetted is so that you make sure that the uh, the quality doesn't suffer. But say this um, junior person is starting up a really, really talented. She would only charge $30 an hour. So you get to keep the difference, right? I see that, but you're still splitting it. If you wanted to grow your business exponentially, that may not be the most optimal route. Hardly. But how about... You know, so, but how about you go the other route that um, you opt for value-based pricing so that you can actually, well, you know, there's a bit of a work associated with that in order for you to create one. And we can talk about that. But once that's in place, then you can, your main motivation, let's just say your graphic design work I want it to be a little bit more specific. Let's just say the brand identity graphic works, either coming up with logos and some of the you know, typeface to go with it. Just that, say you charge $1,500 for that work flat. Your main motivation becomes this. You want to be efficient and create high quality output 
within the limited time, you know, the limited hours so that you're not racking up hours. If you do it faster and more efficient, you still pocket $1,500. Now you can exponentially grow your business in a better way without burning yourself out. Right. And you can increase your profit margin on each sale and then increase the volume of sales. Absolutely. The beauty of value-based pricing is this. It does require a bit of upfront work. You may have to do some research. You may have to crunch some numbers, right? And you may have to test a little bit to see how much would be the right pricing point. But after all that is done, the cost associated with that specific package will go down over time because you you don't have to continuously do research or you know you don't have to continuously do beta testing that'll go away once you find your sweet spot right so the only cost that is going to remain will be um, either hiring someone else to train this whole processes and uh, maybe there might be some SaaS tools that's required to get this package complete and some other maintenance costs. So the cost will go down and over time you get to charge a premium for it. So it's in a sense, it's a win-win strategy. Yeah. Makes total sense. Michael, what are some of the characteristics that you have seen when people go from corporate employee to become an entrepreneur and launch their business for the first time? What are some of the challenges you see people having repeatedly? Yeah, so it's the shift in one's identity. That's a tough one and also get overlooked a lot. So for example, I went through with this experience. So I'm just going to use myself as an example so that I can convey this point clearly. So I used to work for um, a, a few different you know, New York-based record labels. So I'm, my background is working in the music business. I worked for record labels for more than a decade or so. And on my business card, obviously, had this big record label logo on it. That really wasn't my identity. That was the company I was working for. But I got so used to people, you know, rushing over to me at conferences or conventions asking for my business card. And I wasn't delusional. I knew why they were coming to me asking for my business card, not because I was, you know, I was all that cool or like I was famous. None of that. They were coming to me because they wanted to get a business card with that famous big record label logo on it. I wasn't delusional about it, but when I left that life, that was painfully like obvious to me that now I don't even get to wear that T-shirt or I don't even get to wear, you know, have those business cards anymore. It's just me. I need to put myself up front and that is going to be the brand and not the companies that I used to work for. And that's a psychological shift. Some may not have so much of a hard time going through with it, but some may, especially the ones who ended up um, becoming like, uh, you know, the high paid execs leaving their corporate life, trying to start their own businesses. 
Right. And sometimes those high paid corporate execs leave and start their own businesses because they've been asked to leave. Sure. Which makes that that identity issue even harder. Absolutely. You know, you have to first get over that event and make peace with it. Then, you know, they have to shift the gears and start to recreate a brand of their own. And that is also a process. So I I think that is number one sort of challenge that I wanted to point out if I have to pick one, because a lot of times they do have a lot of work experience and expertise that they can transfer over to entrepreneurship or business ownership. And they, they do okay with that. But, you know, that whole identity part, now they don't get to use some of the uh, enterprise platforms that they were using to do their job. They're not subscribed to that anymore or the network or departments or divisions that that they could easily tap into when they were working for someone else is no longer there. So all of a sudden, you know, they're sitting in their office, like a new office, whether it's a home office or co-working place, and they realize, oh, I can't just pick up my phone and ask for something. No, for sure. Micah, what helped you overcome the identity issue as part of your transformation process as you started your business? It took a while, I have to say. I've experienced this a fair amount of resistance, like even just to have my own website under my name, michaelsakai.com. I had so much drama about it. So when I was back in business school, there was a guest speaker. Uh, he specialized in developing personal branding for high-paid execs or whatnot. And his first suggestion was to secure that domain name, right? So yeah, make sure that the you, David, would have davishrinakhan.com so that nobody else can take that from you. And I raised my hand during that presentation. I said, well, but I'm not really up for shameless self-promotion. And his response was, Mr. Guy, get over it. <laughs> everybody laughed in the class. Uh, well, you know, everybody laughed, but I, I had a, so much drama about this. Uh, now I have it and I feel like I own it, but it's been a long journey to get comfortable with it, especially like, you know, like I have like a a lot of little voices going through my head saying that, oh, nobody can pronounce your name, right? Like, or nobody can spell your name. Why would you bother having this domain name for what? But it's something that you have to get over. And I did. After that, I realized, you know, looking back, obviously hindsight is twenty twenty. but I'm like, what was the drama? <laughs> you know, why was I having so much resistance towards it? But um, it's, it's easier for me to say that now, but back then it was a big deal. Right. No, for sure. And uh, look, the reality is, yes, hindsight is twenty twenty, and th- there are some there are some things that we need to do to promote ourselves and promote our businesses. And, um, and I love the way you in particular have carved out some of these 
not so conventional strategies as part of your your own brand and your own methodology because i think those are the kinds of things that if people understood them mm-hmm. they would be able to do a lot better and do it faster so with that being said Michael, if somebody wants to go deeper with anything that you've shared today or get in touch with you how would they do so Okay, so I'm pretty active over Twitter, and my Twitter handle is at Maiko Sakai Biz for business, B-I-Z. And uh, also, I wanted to offer a little gift on my website. So the URL is going to be myfirstnameandlastname.com, so michaelsakai.com forward slash smashing. And I'll have a little video there and you can visit and see um, how I can possibly help you guys. Right. So if you have any questions for Maiko, please uh, check out this free resource, check out the video, get in touch with her and um, see what kinds of unconventional strategies can help you smash the plateau. (laughs) Maiko, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. My guest today has been the founder and owner of Airtight Concepts, Maiko Sakai. Thank you again, Maiko, for joining us on Smashing the Plateau. My pleasure. When you visit the Smashing the Plateau website at smashingtheplateau.com, you'll find a summary of each episode along with the links we mention on the show. Today we learned how you can use counterintuitive strategies to boost profits and much more. Remember to subscribe on whatever platform you listen on and leave a review if you can. And remember, when you support our sponsors, you help us bring Smashing the Plateau to you for free. Thank you for taking the time to listen to our show. I'll see you on our next episode.